Well, hey, well, welcome to Through the Eyes of a Lion, part two. We're so glad to have you here with us, joining us for this series of messages. My prayer as I wrote the book uh, that I, I kept coming back to was, God, would you please use this book uh, to dilate the eyes of people's souls? I don't know if you, when the last time you had your eyes exam, but sometimes they'll put those drops in. I don't like that feeling one bit. I, I can't stand it. I'll, I'll try and talk my eye doctor out of it. I'm like, I'm a good man. We had it last year. He's like, no, we really need to see in the back of your eye. I'm like, yeah, I promise it's fine. I feel very good. And, and he's like, no, we really need to do it. And then if he promises me a sucker, usually I'll go along with it. But you put the little drops in there, and just what happens is it causes your pupils to open up wider as though you were in a super dark movie theater and, and your pupils were having to open up or in a cave to, to make out stuff. And, uh, but it does it involuntarily. So your pupils are just open. And what happens is a ton of light comes flooding in. And as a result, you can see stuff far away, so you're safe to drive. But stuff really close is hard to make out. And what bugs me about that is like, I found it was impossible to use my phone when my pupils were dilated last. But if I held my phone at arm's length, I could make stuff out. And you should just see my wife laughing at me as I'm walking around looking at my phone. But I was back in the game, so what did I care? You know what I'm saying? <laughs> But, but the reason I was praying, God, use this book to dilate the eyes of people's soul. And that's my prayer as you join us for this series, whatever church you're at, however you're listening to this message. My prayer as you, as you go through this book on your own, as you discuss it in smaller settings, would be that God would use it to cause your eyes inside your heart to, to open up and that the light of the world, Jesus Christ, would come flooding into your light, that you would see stuff far away, super clear, and that the things of this world would grow strangely dim in the light of of his glory, in the light of his grace. Really, my prayer, essentially, was that you would help people to see life through the eyes of a lion. You know, lions are what they call long-sighted. Lions see things extremely well far away. And they can actually see things in, they can see in the dark six times better than the eyes of a human for a number of reasons. Uh, one is uh, God, build, God built cats with bigger pupils. So their pupils are bigger, and that's the entrance where light enters the eye through the, through the pupil. So they have bigger pupils. Uh, they have the ability, when they're in dark situations, to open their pupils three times wider than the uh, eye of a human. So they can open them up much bigger. Uh, furthermore, uh, they have more rods than they do cones. And if you learned, if you were with us last weekend, the rods see well in dimness and the cones help you make out color. So lions aren't as good with color, so don't help, ask them to help you pick out your, your clothing. However, if you need to see in the dark, the eyes of a lion come in quite nicely. Uh, then they have this, this layer of, uh, of, of reflective material right behind the retina. Okay, so the light passes, hits the retina, those rods and cones line the retina, and, uh, and, and that's what sends the image to the brain. But lions have this reflective backing behind the retina, and what happens is the light hits it, goes through the rods and cones, but then goes back again. And so the, the eye, basically, if it's film, gets exposed to every bit of light that comes in twice as much. And that's why, if you've ever seen a cat at night, their eyes seem like they're almost glowing, like they're almost putting off light. Well, they are. They're putting off light that they're getting. So it's not that they get more light than we do. It's just that they use the light that there is better. They're, they're, they better manage the light that they got. Then God built lions where they have, if you notice, a little tiny white stripe under each eye. And, and that's there exactly for the opposite reason a quarterback would put black paint under his eyes. See, a, a quarterback is wanting to reduce the glare. 
to make the light not go into his eye as much as possible with that black paint. But the lions are doing it for the exact opposite reason. They're doing it so any starlight, any moonlight, any light that is existing, ambient light, would, would, would be drawn to the eye. They're trying to magnify the glare to direct more light into their eyes. Isn't God amazing how he built the eye of a lion? And listen, listen. That's exactly what you're going to need. You're going to need to better use the light that's there. The light that's there, you just can't. You got to get better at, at opening your God wants to open your eyes so that the light that's flooded into the world, as long as he's in the world, he is the light of the world. It would come into your eye. Open up the eyes of your heart so that you could triumphantly, courageously, and fearlessly face up to this thing called Saturday. That's a big metaphor in the book. Olivia, my oldest daughter, I asked Olivia what the book was about. And here's what Livy said. Livy said, the book's all about making it to Sunday, Dad. That's a one-sentence summary. Save your time. You don't have to read the book. It's making it to Sunday. What do you mean, making it to Sunday? I mean, getting through the difficult, rugged, uncharted terrain that can be Saturday. Now, you might be hearing that and going, dude, Saturday's the best thing in the world. What are you talking about? We get to sleep in Saturday. We get to ride the jet ski. Saturday rules. There's not enough Saturday for my liking. I'm talking about Saturday as, a, as an analogy to the period that we're living in. And, and, and it corresponds to the death and resurrection of Jesus. You probably know that Jesus died on Good Friday, and he rose from the dead on Easter Sunday. And we talk a lot about those two days, right? Because, well, well Good Friday, that, 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 for the disciples, that was tragic. It was, it, was, it was shocking. But for us, there's power in it because of the cross. And we talk a lot about Sunday because, well, come on. He got up from the dead. He rose and defeated the grave, defeated the devil. He kicked the, the devil's teeth in. He turned off the darkness of death by turning on the light of life forever. He's brought us immortality through the gospel. So we can't talk, we can't talk enough about Sunday. And, and we should never forget what happened on Friday when he went to the cross. Those are golden words from Golgotha, right? But the day that doesn't get a lot of play is Saturday. Right there in between was Saturday. And what would that have been like for the early disciples of Jesus? It would have been a day of, of disillusionment. Why? Because on Friday, he had promised, don't worry, I'm coming back, right? He said, I'm going to die, but three days later, I'll raise from the dead. But on Saturday, it seemed real unlikely. His body lay cold in the tomb, wrapped up in 75 pounds of spices and strips. That stone they rolled across the front seemed real heavy on Saturday. And that guard that was stationed there, who's going to get through them? Saturday, it seemed like all the promises Jesus had made were going to fall to the ground. And we, so to speak, we live in an age of Saturday today, the time in between promise and fulfillment. Jesus has said he will come back, but he hasn't come back yet, has he? Saturday, people are tempted to give up on his promise or explain it away and stop believing and stop waiting and stop having their, their lamp burning and their wicks trimmed and their, their lamps full of oil, right? S Saturday is, is, is the promise of a new body, but right now you're still in that wheelchair. Saturday is the pain's going to end one day, but right now you have chronic, chronic pain shooting up your lower back. Saturday is the empty seat at the dinner table. It's the promise that you're going to get to introduce your son to his father one day. But right now, it's just stories and pictures and a few videos. Saturday. Saturday's tough stuff. And it's easy to get discouraged. And so if we're going to make it through Saturday, we had better open up wide the pupils of our soul 
and let a whole bunch of light in. And I want to give you, I want to give you a perspective in this second installment of this series that I believe will help you do just that. I'm calling this message Standing on Tiptoes at the Edge of Eternity. You like how I acted that out? Standing on Tiptoes at the Edge of Eternity. We're going to learn to lean into the groan. We're going to learn to lean into the groan. If you have a Bible, Romans chapter 8 is where we're going to be. Romans chapter 8. If you're new to church and Maybe a buddy just said, hey, we're, we're talking about hope. We're talking about difficult stuff. You've been going through it, and so you came with them, and you're like, I don't have a Bible. I don't, I'm going to look out of place. Let me just tell you, we're glad you came. We're glad you're here. You don't need to know where Romans is to fit in. You don't need to own a Bible to, to be in the in crowd. We're just glad you're here. We're going to put the verses up on the screen for you. But in just a moment, we're going to jump into Romans chapter 8, verse 18. Are you there? All right. For I consider, Paul says, for I consider. Everyone say for. Everyone say it like you're playing golf. Say four. four. No, don't say it like that. That'd be weird. It doesn't make any sense. Four is just a regular four. I consider that the sufferings of this present time, the sufferings of Saturday, are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us when Sunday gets here. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation, here it is, groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. Not only that, but we also, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. For we were saved in this hope. Verse 24, let's skip to verse 26. Look at the last verse we're going to consider. Likewise, or similarly, the Spirit also helps in our weaknesses. For we do not know what we should pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself makes intercessions for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Father, we pray that you would speak to us through your word. We pray that you would open our eyes to see glorious truths in your word. Help us to know that you are here, you're near, and that you love us and are for us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. It's staggering how every time you turn around, technology has just changed. And it, it, it's hard to, you know, to realize the immensity of the change because we're so close up to it. But then every once in a while, you bump into a piece of technology that seems like it should be from 1,000 years ago, but it really wasn't all that long ago that we were using it. Like the other day, I bumped into a floppy disk. Remember those? <laughs> we were at a store in, in Texas, and, and they, they had basically taken old pieces of technology and turned them into pieces of art. So it was a floppy disk clock you could have on your table. It was a little clock, but the hands went around the floppy disk. Now, honestly, in church, who, who, who used a floppy disk? Who remembers floppy disks? Now, I'm not talking about the ones that were actually floppy. This was the smaller, hard one that wasn't floppy at all, but it was just called a floppy disk. And, and, and what would you use those for? You could store, like, one Word document on them. Enormous storage capacity. The big ones were, like, one half of a megabyte, right? And, and we would stick these, young people, this is real, we'd stick these into our computers and we'd transfer data off of it that we wanted to. You could turn in homework on a floppy disk. You, you turn projects in on a, on a floppy. You would back stuff, 
up to a, 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 floppy, a floppy disk. And, and, then, and then technology just went, went way, a huge step forward when we could burn CDs. Burn, we, would, we would burn CDs, but you would burn documents and data and stuff you needed to save onto it. The only way to get stuff off of your computer was to burn it onto a CD-ROM so that you then could have it, right? And, and then there was two failed kind of half steps, the jazz drive and the zip drive. Those didn't last very long. But then we got quickly to the, the thumb drive. And the thumb drive was a big step for you. You just took the thumb drive in, load up a bunch of stuff on it. But, but now we don't even need that anymore. Because now you just put it in your Dropbox. You just put it in your Dropbox and just put it, airdrop it. Hey, bro, get your Bluetooth on, airdrop me that thing, right? So, so really what that means, that now, now all these documents and things that used to go on the floppy drive and the CD-ROM and the zip drive, now they're just floating through the air right now, right now. They're probably going through your body right now. Someone's angry email just passed right through you, <laughs> giving you heartache, like, oh, right? It's causing cancer or something. Like, everything's just floating around in the air. You talk about this, and young people are like, well, why didn't you just email it? We didn't have the internet. There was, <laughs> why would you put it on a floppy disk when you could just email it to you? Well, that was a problem. <laughs> and then we did get the email because there was those AOL CDs. You would, do you remember installing applications by floppy disk? They would come with like a box of 17 of them, insert floppy disk one, two, three. You lose like the, the fifth one, your app can't install. And even video games. Like in our house, we, we have like an Xbox One. But the Xbox One's kind of creepy. My wife's disturbed by it. Because the way you turn it on is you talk to it. You say, Xbox, turn on. Xbox on. And, and then this light flickers to life above your TV. Like it was always there waiting, listening for the right command. And the light turns on. And this really disturbed her. And so I bought a little shield. We can slide over it when we're not using it so that it doesn't watch us when she doesn't want it to. She look, remember that? And, and, and so you say Xbox on, and then, and then you play. And if, if you don't like the game you're playing, you, you can go on the internet without anything to put in it, and, and, and a new game just downloads off of I don't know where, just a new game. And if, you, if you're bored while playing, you can say, Xbox, show me my Twitter feed. And it just, in picture in picture, starts showing your tweets. And if that's not enough, the Xbox, let me watch the TV, and it snaps the TV on, because that's all we need, to be playing video games, reading tweets, and watching TV all the while telling everybody we know that there's nothing to do, right? That's, but there was a simpler day of entertainment, right? I brought with me how I was, and I was a kid. This is how we play video games. This is a video game. None of this, download it from the cloud. Olivia, this is how we played Super Mario Bros. So, 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 so this is like a game cartridge, and we would take this thing, and you would stick it in the Nintendo Entertainment System, and then you would, it has a little slot for your fingers, so you'd stick it in, and then you'd push down. And sometimes a little spring-loaded contraption would stick, and you'd have to keep you know, wiggling, and it would go down. Then you shut the flap, and the controllers were all wired. So it was none of this invisible, you know, you just lie there on the couch. Like, you had like a four-foot leash to play the, the game. And the, the, the controller was like a cross pad and then two buttons and start and select. And Mario went from the left side to the right side, try and jump on the mushrooms, don't fall in any holes, and watch out for the flowers that spit fire, right? And doo-doo-doo-doo-doo, and you know, you're down the tube. And, it was a good time right there, man. But, but, but anybody remember how sometimes you're playing Mario and the thing will get super glitch fest? Like, glitch, like, you're just, you know, like pixelated, like tarts turn purple, like Mario's on acid or something. Now, a little bit about me. I was actually in a, in a Nintendo commercial as a little kid. You didn't know you were in the presence of a celebrity. I had one line. I turned up to the camera, and I said, 
yeah, kids, save the princess. That was my line. Because <laughs> that's what Mario was trying to do. He's trying. I still got it. Watch. Yeah, kids, save the princess. <laughs> save it. Save her. Because it's a plumber with a mustache trying to save a princess. It doesn't make any sense. It's, but when it would get glitchy, there was only one thing to do. Do you, you remember what you would do? If it stopped working, you would pull the game out. Am I lying? That's how we did it. That's how we, that's how we fixed it. But, and then the CDs, when they skip, you go, ah. And you pray to God they work. You know what I'm saying? But half the time, that fixed it. You pop that thing back in, and all of a sudden, it would work. Why am I telling you this? Not quite sure. No, that's not true. I do, I do know. Here's why. Because, because the, what we just read in Romans chapter 8, it tells us that there's a glitch in the whole creation. The, the whole world, the whole physical universe, everything we see, everything we encounter, it, it, the Bible said it's corrupted. It's under a curse. It's not as it should be. And that's why there's tornadoes. And that's why there's, there's, there's car accidents. And that's why there's cancer. And that's why there's difficulty and tears and divorce and sadness and sorrow and sin and death. But the Bible promises that the day is coming when God's going to pull the whole game out of the system. He's going to. And he's going to put it back in and boot it up as good as new. And everybody's going to come out of the grave. And Jesus Christ going to come back on a white horse and rule and reign with a rod of iron. And the lion's going to lie down with a lamb. And he's going to make a new heaven and a new earth. There's not going to be any glitches. There's not going to be any problems. There's not going to be any difficulties. And we'll never have to leave. People be talking about, about who's in the White House. Let me tell you, the, the solution to, to the problems that we're facing in this world is the one coming back on the white horse. His name is Jesus. He's faithful and true. And of, his, of the increase of his reign, there will be no end. All right, so that's what, we're, that's what we're longing for, everyone. That's what we're longing for. And I talk a lot about, it, about that in this book what heaven's really going to be like. Because I think we've fallen for a lie about heaven. We've fallen for a myth heaven that does not exist, that's full of chubby, baby, naked angels floating around. And we're sitting on clouds, all of us wearing dresses, right? Just singing hymns that we don't know or like for the rest of eternity. And we're, tr we're supposed to be excited about that. Anyone want to go to heaven? No. <laughs> Sounds terrible, right? Talk about taking the air out of your evangelistic efforts, right? Would you like to go sing Gregorian chants translucently floating around in an opaque body forever, pale and thin? No, I don't even like the harp. What are you talking about? Hey, listen, I've read the whole Bible front to back numerous times. I've never read anything about a chubby baby naked angel ever anywhere, so I don't know where the heck that came from. That's creepy. And so the reason I talk about New heaven, new earth, new bodies, what it's really going to be like there is because incorrect information will fill you with unnecessary fear. But an accurate picture of what Jesus is actually going to do, it will fill your spine with steel. It will give you an unshakable courage and a desire and an expectation and a passion to get to your homeland. But at the end of the day, what's going to make heaven heaven? isn't going to be how beautiful it is. It's not going to be golden streets or even flying around on your own personal unicorn, though that's going to be awesome. <laughs> What's going to make heaven heaven is being with Jesus.
If you want a working definition of heaven, you could just, you could just sub that in, being with Jesus. In fact, Jesus himself is the one who came up with the idea. He told the thief on the cross, a dude who's about to die, who by every right should be totally freaked out, yet he had the the presence of mind to put his faith into Jesus, who was dying on the cross beside him. And here's what Jesus said to the man. He turned to him and he said, assuredly, I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. You see, Jesus died first. He got there ahead of the thief. And when the thief finally did die, that same day, today you'll be with me. So that tells you something. You talk about Amazon offering two-day overnight or what FedEx getting this next day. Jesus offers same-day delivery. Thief died that day, same day. He showed up in heaven. Jesus be like, what up, man? What took you so long? Hey, let me show you to your room. So it's going to be being with Jesus that makes heaven heaven. And this is what everyone, deep down, whether they know it, acknowledge it or not, is longing for. And by everyone, I mean everyone. And by longing for, I mean groaning for. Did you notice three times in the text we read that word? Groan, groaning, groanings. What does it mean to groan? Well, it's a a heavy-hearted moan. It's a sigh pregnant with anxiety, with desire, with yearning. It's the soundtrack to Saturday, an ache we can't shake. What else is there to do besides groan when you feel your phone buzz and you pull it out to see a breaking news alert of yet another shooting? What can you do besides, uh, can you groan with me? Uh, When you pass a terrible accident on the freeway, and you see a car mangled up on the side of the road, and first responders feverishly working to extricate someone with the jaws of life, and you see the ambulance pull up, you see flares on the road, and cops are diverting traffic, what can you do besides, uh, it's the acknowledging of the corruption, the sensing of something that's a, a glitch in the system that shouldn't be there. We intuitively know that's not how things should be, so we groan. It gives an audible sound to what we're feeling, the sensation deep down that this is not right. This is an intruder. This is an an invader. What we're seeing on the screen is not what was originally put into the code. There's something defiling. There's something cursing everything. It's it's the sound of Saturday. It's, it's It's what I do when I walk by Linya's bike. And I think of all the rides I'd like to take with her. All I can do is groan. It's, 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 it's when I see her sisters playing, and I wish she could be there with her, them playing with her. And, and it's so many times what we express when we don't have words to speak. I'll never forget the night she went to heaven. I, I think of it from time to time when I see my fireplace or my front door, because I remember just when we were home from the hospital, I just kept falling on the mantle and just, just feeling this, this groan in my heart. There was, there was nothing you could do or say except for to groan. But it's not just when we encounter tragedy. It's this universal longing for something more that every human being feels deep down, and an internal hole somewhere inside of our heart that can't and won't be satisfied by anything on this earth. You see, this, this groaning, it's, uh, it's expressed through when we ask the questions, what is the meaning of life by a million people in a million places? What's going to happen to me when I die? How can I know that I'll go to heaven and not hell. 
It's, it's, it's the letdown we feel when we finally achieve some huge accomplishment that we thought would bring the burst of happiness that would cause everything to click into place. That, that big bonus, that, that promotion, when your business is finally booming, when you finally got that boat, when money is not quite as much of an issue as it, as it once was, when you finally slept with that girl and now you're dating that guy, right? It's, it's waiting for that happiness that you thought would get there when you finally got that, to, to, but then all of a sudden, what do you feel? A desire for more? Happiness just moved? What is that? That's the groaning, that's the longing. And here's what you need to know about it. It is both for and from God. It's both for and from God. It is, it, is, it is the easiest thing in the world to misdiagnose the groan, therefore to mistreat it. To misdiagnose what you're feeling and so to mistreat it. So you, you, I, they, they say that many times when we go eat, like you're just doing nothing, so you're, I'm hungry, so I go eat something. They say many of the times that we do that, we just randomly compulsively eat, we're actually thirsty, not hungry. Because one of the symptoms of dehydration is a hunger pain. So you'll go eat something. What are you doing? You're mistreating something that you misdiagnosed. If you would have had a big glass of water instead of eating some unnecessary Doritos or wheat thins, the Christian Doritos, <laughs> right? You would be accurately dealing with what you're feeling. Many times people do things that they do in this world, buy things, sleep with people, snort things, right? What are they doing? They're actually mistreating something they failed to diagnose. The groaning is both for and from God. Let me tell you about, it's for God. We're groaning for God. We're groaning for him. We're not looking for something on this earth because nothing on this earth can fill the hole in the human soul. Haggai said that Jesus is the desire of all nations. Jesus is the only one who can satisfy the ache within. What we're looking for is living water. What we're hungry for is the bread of life. And nothing else will do anything but give us a temporary happiness and then wear off and leave us hungrier and emptier than ever. Lonely, even in the middle of a crowded room. So it's, it's for God, but it's also from God, meaning God put the groaning there in the first place. God is the one who makes us groan. He's the one who lets us be unsatisfied with anything on this earth and still feeling fulfilled. Why? It's a mechanism intended to be used to restore a lost possession to himself. Let me say that again. It's a mechanism intended to help him restore a lost possession to himself. Kind of like those shoplifting deterrents that are on clothes at the mall. If you go buy a shirt at Nordstrom or you, you go get something at TJ Maxx, right? And, and they have this affixed to it so that if you try to take it out of the store when it's not yours, you'll pass that perimeter, you'll pass that boundary, and instantly the groaning starts. There's, there's a buzzing. Actually, there's like SWAT team. Like with, you know, right? Why? Because it's not yours, but you've taken it out of the store. It's not where it should be. You could say that when Adam fumbled, when Adam sinned in the garden and we were e evicted out of paradise, out of the presence of God, our sins, they separated us from God. When that happened, we were taken out of God's presence and we've been groaning ever since. Groaning to get back to Eden. 
groaning to get back to the presence of God in whom his presence is fullness of joy and at his right hand are pleasures evermore. There's, there's a buzzing inside of us and he put it there so that we would grope and search and in searching we would find him for he is not far from any one of us. It's a mechanism intended for him to restore the prodigal son, to get that coin back, to find that lost sheep and to get you back into his arms that you're buzzing for. It's a homing signal, a homing signal to get you home. C.S. Lewis said, if I find within myself a desire that no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. Therefore, the most unkind thing God could do would be to let you stop groaning, to let you be satisfied in this world, because then you'd stop looking for him. The groaning is a compass that points us to true north. So that even if it's just through the process of elimination, not it, not it, not it, you would keep searching until you find him. And when you search for him with your whole heart, you'll find him. He's knocking on the door of your heart. He wants you to open the door so he can come in. And your whole life, you'll be restless until you find your rest in him. Now, here's a question. What do we do until we stop groaning? What do we do in the meantime? What do we do? Because yes, Sunday's coming. Sunday's coming. Isaiah 25, 8 says he's going to swallow up death forever. He's going to blow on the video game. It's all going to be reset. Everything's going to be made right. We won't have to groan anymore. But what do we do until that day? What do we do on Saturday? I say we lean into the groan by standing on our tiptoes at the edge of eternity. That's what verse 19 is saying, right? You, you might have missed it. The earnest expectation of creation. Do you see those two words? Earnest expectation of creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. That phrase, earnest expectation, is only used two times in the entire Bible, and it's a very unique phrase that speaks of stretching out your neck and craning your head to see something, right? And, and, and J.B. Phillips translates it this way. The whole creation is on tiptoe, is on tiptoe just to see the wonderful sight of the sons of God coming into their own. You could say that every squirrel, every sunset, every mountain, every stream, every deer, the whole of creation is just packed, bristling, can't wait to have the system reset, can't wait to be as they were before the fall when they were subject to infirmity, can't wait. The, Jesus said if we don't praise him, the rocks will cry out, and they're bristling for the chance to do so. The Bible speaks in the, in, in, in the day when Jesus is on the earth once again of, of every tree and every forest clapping their hands and raising their voice in worship. C.S. Lewis talks about animals talking. Well, in the Bible, sometimes animals do talk, and before the fall, the snake did talk. So who knows? Maybe every animal's waiting to get their voice back so they can get their praise on. All I know is that all of creation is doing what we're supposed to do. They're up on their tiptoes. Their necks are craned. They're, they're, they're head stressed. They're giving themselves a crink in the neck. They're so excited to see Jesus come back. And that's how we should be too. And if you live that way, if you live your life, spiritually speaking, up on your tiptoes, I'm going to tell you four things that are going to happen. First of all, it will impact your evaluation, the way you evaluate things. We're constantly being evaluated. And you go to the doctor for your annual physical, and, and what's, the, what's, the, what's the first thing they do? Uh, step up on that scale. We need to do, see how much you weigh. Really? We just met. What do you, what's the matter with you? I don't, I don't know you. 
Well, they're evaluating you and specifically how much you weigh. If we're on tiptoes, I'm going to tell you, it's going to cause us to evaluate how much stuff weighs differently. Let me show this to you in the text. Paul says, look at him. He says in verse 18, for I consider. That's a statement of evaluation, isn't it? Here's how I see it. Here's my perspective on it. My perspective on life's difficulties are as such that the sufferings of this present time now, pause right there. Did Paul go through some sufferings? Yeah. Yes, he did. Yes, ma'am, he did. Yes, sir, he did. Paul was shipwrecked. Paul was, was almost drowned in the ocean. He was bit by a snake. He was put in prison more times than he could count. He was beaten with rods. He was stoned with rocks, not weed. Yeah, I mean, Paul went through it, man. Okay, And at the end of the day, he had his head cut off. But here's how Paul said, how I see these difficult things in life. I evaluate them as, as not even being worthy to even mention, not even worthy to be even included in the same sentence compared with the heaviness of how awesome, of how big, of how huge, of the glory that shall be revealed in us. Paul's up on tiptoes. Do you see it? And he's like, here up on tiptoes, when I'm taller, I can see stuff better in the distance. When I'm taller, I can see over obstacles, and I can see what's, what's coming. Sometimes we, we only see what's here, but if we got up here, we'd have the perspective to see things that are ahead, and that would cause us to see what is right in front of us as maybe a bit different. You see what I'm saying? Weight is all about gravity, and gravity has everything to do with where you're standing. Tell me if I'm right, science teachers, right? Gravity is a force that attracts two objects together, and the larger, the greater the mass of an object, the stronger its gravitational pull. So the Earth pulls us to it, and its mass is pretty big, so it pulls on us pretty, pretty, pretty strongly. But that's why if you go to the moon, its mass is smaller, therefore its attraction is weaker. So on the moon, it doesn't pull you down to it as good, and that's why you bounce on the moon. So let's say you took a 100-pound weight with you to the moon. Let's say you were like, I'm going to the moon, I'm bringing 100 pounds with me. Why you would pack that, I don't know. You've got to get your pump on on the moon, right? And, and so on Earth, that weight weighs 100 pounds. But if Josh brings 100 pounds to the moon, do you know how much that same exact weight would weigh? 16 pounds. Same exact weight. Did anything happen to the weight? No, it's the exact same weight. But he's standing on something different. He's standing on something that is smaller, and so its attraction grows weaker. The pull of it is smaller. So it's a complete shift. The same object weighs less depending on where you're standing. If you're standing on your trials, and that's all you can see, then the things in your life are going to weigh you down. They're going to seem so massive. They're going to seem insurmountable. But once you get on your tiptoes, you get the perspective to see what's coming, and then you shift because now you're standing on the promises of God, and the power of what you're holding, it's still the same thing. It's just not so powerful anymore because you're standing on God's promises so its power gets weaker. That's how Paul could say, our outward man is perishing. I'm dying. Yet I see that God's making me stronger on the inside. So I don't even, I don't even think the trials I'm going through, they're, they're small potatoes compared to the glory that's coming. That's so big. That's so huge. Because he's on his tiptoes, his evaluation of the difficulties of life, it changes. So, so, so for me, I, I could go, oh, every day, two and a half years, three and a half years, five. I, I'm so far from Linya. I'm, far, I'm getting further from Linya every day. It's harder for me to remember her smell. It's more difficult for me to recall her voice without listening to a video. 
And I could say, it's so heavy because I'm getting further. Or I could stand up on my tiptoes. Oh my gosh, I see. I'm getting closer to her every day, closer to her. It, it gets lighter the same way when I just look at it and I evaluate it through a different lens. You see? Your evaluation changes. Second thing, when you get up on your tiptoes and you lean into that groan, you will notice that you have better traction. Second point, traction. Traction is the stability of a firm foundation. And, 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 and so I got I to help you understand something. Tiptoes is, is being like a ballerina, kind of, right? Like, I totally have this, this working knowledge because I got Olivia, Lenya, Daisy, Clover. God's blessed Jen and I with four daughters. So I know a whole lot about tiptoes. Um, in fact, let me show you just a day in the life. This is Lusco family. Prancy, dancy, dancy, right? All up on their toes. These girls have never been flat-footed a day in their life. But the cool thing is that we think of it maybe as a ballerina, but let me, let me ask you, last time you watched a boxing match, what did they look like from the waist down? <laughs> right? Pretty much it's ballet from the waist down. They're dancing. Flies a butterfly, sing like a... Not much of a boxing fan, I can tell. <laughs> Why do they stand on their toes and not their heels? Because about the worst thing that could happen to someone who knows they're in a fight is to, is to find themselves on their heels. Because they can get you on the heels, they can knock you out, knock you over. Check out 1 Peter 2.11. Beloved, I beg you, as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts that war against your soul. Check it. This is a battle. This is a fight. This is a war. The Christian life is not a playground. It's a battleground. And you got an enemy who wants to knock you out. So you need traction. He wants to get you on your heels so he can knock you over with temptation to live for this world and this world alone. But you fight against that by what? Popping up on your toes, seeing what's to come, and realizing, I'm a pilgrim. I'm a sojourner. The way you fight against the lust at war against your soul is by waking up every day like my wife Jenny does and saying to yourself, I seek a homeland. She put it on the wall. She can't help. It's the first thing she sees after she sees me and tells me that I'm the greatest husband that's ever, you know, and <laughs> brings me breakfast in bed. She then says to herself, I seek a homeland. And what is she doing by reminding herself that heaven is her home and she's just here as a pilgrim, here just passing through? It puts herself up on her tiptoes all day and it gives her traction and makes her more difficult for the enemy to knock down. So you got to get up on your toes and say to yourself each day, I seek a homeland. It will get you off of your heels onto your toes. Second thing it's going to give you, who needs some traction? It's going to give it to you if you lean into the groan. Evaluation. Traction. Third, it's going to prepare you for action. It's going to prepare you for action. When I was a little kid, I, I, my parents made me take tennis lessons, and I hated it at the time, but for this sermon and this sermon alone, I'm thankful for it. <laughs> I remember my coach, one of the first things they told us was ready position. Anybody remember ready position? Ready position looks like this. Now, feet kind of shoulder width apart, and you're bouncing back and forth on the balls of your feet, and your racket's not down here, and it's not up here, 
is, this is how you, you receive a serve. You stand there at ready position. Why? Because if the ball comes over here, if I'm like this, I, I, I can get there. If the, if the ball comes back there, I, I, I can back up real quick. If, if the ball's right up at the, at the net, I, I can rush to the net. If I'm, if I'm at my ready position on my toes, I can get to wherever the ball goes, wherever I need to be. But if I'm standing there flat-footed, I'm going to have something sail right past me that I was meant to get, that I was meant to return. Check this out. On this journey of faith, we're not just waiting to get to heaven. We're here as ambassadors on a mission, pilgrims on a mission. We, we represent our homeland. He, he put us here to reach out to people. We are deputized, and we have the authority to offer full-fledged citizenship, brand new life, total forgiveness and peace with God. You are destined for impact. You're a chosen generation. You're a royal priesthood. You're God's peculiar people, a holy nation. He wants you to be used. There's balls all the time coming around you. He wants you to be able to get to that. That one's for me. That one's for me. I'm a banker. That's my, it's my platform. It's my arena. This is my, my someone comes in. I'm like, you're going to get loved on. They're going to be treated as I'm a waitress. I got that one. I got that one. I'm a mom. Those kids are mine. I'm going to reach out to these kids right here. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to show them. You see what I'm saying? And when, when you're on your toes, you're not going to miss valuable opportunities. These balls that, that come by, you're going to be ready to pounce and not miss a single occasion. This was Abraham's secret. Abraham was used by God probably as much or more as anyone in the entire Bible, right? And, 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 and every single believer who's ever existed has Abraham to thank because he's the father of everyone who would believe. God used him hugely. How did it work? Let me show you. Hebrews 11, verse 9 and 10. It says, even when he reached the land God promised him, he lived there by faith, for he was like a foreigner living in tents, and so did Isaac and Jacob, who inherited the same promise. Abraham was confidently looking forward to a city with eternal foundations, a city designed and built by God. God called him to do something that was crazy at the time, something that was difficult at the time, something that didn't make any sense. And everything he did that ended up being a blessing to every single person who ever lived, it was all done looking forward past what he was doing onto what was to come. So when you look at your life, and, and maybe sometimes we're going to do some things and be called to do some things that, that are difficult for you in the moment that don't make necessarily great sense, but when you do so looking forward expectantly to a city whose builder and maker is God, and you don't just look at this world and and you don't just look at people as people, but you see them as someone that Jesus shed his blood to save, that God wants to use. You're going to go to work every day with different, a different lens on your eyes. You're going to be up on tiptoes, so you're ready to pounce. And even when it hurts, you're going to be prepared to let God use your pain as a microphone to reach out to people in different places. And he'll bless you as he blesses them through you. I got, I got one last thing. Our evaluation changes. Our traction changes. The way we're prepared for action, that's amazing. Last thing, when you stand up on your toes, it gives you new elevation. New elevation, right? Why? Because when you're standing on your toes, something weird happens to your body. You get taller. Like, I'm 5'10 and a half. I didn't say that, like, excited about it. I always wanted to be six foot. I have three siblings that are six foot plus. 
And I always was just waiting for the day when I, my turn was going to come. You know? And my, my, my growth spurt came and went, and six foot did not. And so I'm five, ten and a half. I've never met anybody tell me that they're six foot and a half. And if I was six foot and a half, I probably wouldn't tell you either. Because I'd just be like, I'm six foot. Can you imagine how big this church would be if I was six foot? Can you, can you, can you imagine how much better life would go if I, no, I'm just, just, just playing. You know, you, you think of stuff. If only, if only I had a brain, right? <laughs> but when I get up on my toes, I'm probably six foot and a half. Right? Do you know the definition of elevation? Height above sea level. Hang on to that. We're going to come back to that in one second. I need to tell you about someone else who groans. I told you that creation groans. I told you that universally every person groans. But now you need to know that God groans too. Look what the text says about the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit himself groans in our hearts. If you listen carefully, you'll hear the Spirit groaning. It's the lion's roar rumbling around inside your soul. And so the crazy thing about us leaning into the groan is that we, as we groan, the Holy Spirit groans, all of creation's groaning, we're sort of participating in this sympathetic resonance. It goes from mono to stereo. And what happens when human weakness and God's power collide is that anything is possible. And David put it this way. He said, when my heart is overwhelmed, Lead me to the rock that is higher than I. You see, the elevation changes. You get to get a little bit taller because the spirit lifts you up. There's a boost inside your heart. God, God picks you up and, and sets you on a rock. And, and so what's beautiful about that is that you get to get above sea level. And in the book, one of the things I talk about is that grief is, a, is, is like being in ocean waves. Ocean waves go over you. And sometimes when waves are big and, and you're having a hard time treading water, it can be real difficult to get a breath. But what's so great about leaning into the groan and getting up on your tiptoes is that when you get a little bit higher, I found you can breathe a little bit better. You can get a breath of air that can sustain you for the fight that's to come. And so look up. Your, your deliverer has come. His name is Jesus and he's roaring like a lion inside your heart. His spirit's groaning. He's got a plan. He hasn't forgotten about you. He'll set you on a rock when your heart is overwhelmed. So get up on your tiptoes, people. Lean into the ground. Raise your hands up to the heavens and know that Jesus loves you. And even if the sun goes cold, even if the rain falls hard, he's going to be there for you. Come on, I dare you to worship him and celebrate him for all that he's done. Thank you so much for watching this teaching from my husband in this series, Through the Eyes of a Lion. We hope that um, God used this to open your eyes and to see what is unseen and to see that um, even in impossible pain, um, you can have incredible power. And if you just put your faith in Jesus and made the decision to follow Him and give Him your life, First of all, congratulations. We are so excited. We are so happy for you. And you're the reason why we do 
all of what we do. We, um, we want to reach those who are stranded in sin to find life and liberty in Jesus Christ. And so if that's you, um, be sure to click the Know God link at freshlifechurch.com and we'd love to send you a Bible and some resources that will help you kickstart your relationship with God. And as you're listening to this teaching, if um, God was using it to impact your life, we would love to hear that. So if you would go to eyesofalion.com, um, we would love to hear your roar story and the things that God has done in your life and is doing in your life. It lights us up to know um, the things that God's doing in people's lives. It, me it means so much to us. And if God has blessed you through the ministry here at Fresh Life Church and you'd like to partner financially with all God is doing above and beyond um, your tithe to your local church, um, it's easy to do that. If you go to freshlifechurch.com and click Give, um, it launches a secure giving page and it will enable you to set up one-time gift or um, recurring gifts. And um, it's just such an honor to to get to be a part of what God is doing. And thank you so much for joining us, and God bless you.